Welcome to A Hand Up. Today's interview was conducted with Mr. Tim Bauckham of Shaw Industries in April of 2020. Good morning, Tim. Thank you again for uh, being on the uh, podcast today. I, I, again, just want to extend my gratitude to you on behalf of all the Habitat affiliates in Georgia. And uh, Before we get started, would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and about Shaw Industries and your role there? Sure, Ryan, and I appreciate all the work you do. You make our community stronger and, and our state stronger, and I'm, I'm honored to, uh, to support in any little way. You know, uh, I was, was born and raised in the Carolinas. Uh, I moved to Columbia, South Carolina in high school. I call that my hometown. I met my wife, Cheryl, there uh, in high school, and we both stayed there and went to college. Uh, I earned a BS degree in mechanical engineering from the University of South Carolina, and she earned a BA degree in marketing from Columbia College. Uh, we married uh, after Cheryl graduated, and we'll be celebrating 40 years of marriage this August. Uh, about 10 years into my career, uh, I did go to uh, Emory there in Atlanta and got an MBA. Uh, Cheryl and I moved to Dalton in 1989, and we've raised our children here. Cheryl's a realtor at Colwell Banker, Kennard Realty, so we're very involved in the real estate business. Uh, a little bit about Shaw, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. We're the world's largest carpet manufacturer and a leading producer and supplier of hard surface flooring with emphasis on engineered hardwood and luxury vinyl flooring. I know that uh, the LVT, as we call it, has been an important flooring for many of the habitat homes. Uh, we have revenue uh, of about $6 billion and employ a little over 20,000 associates. Uh, I joined Shaw in 1992 and have had various uh, leadership roles in sales and marketing and product development and general management across both our residential and our commercial businesses. And I've been president here for about a year. Um, I started my career in 1981 until 1992 uh, working for EI DuPont, uh, started in engineering and transitioned into manufacturing and then later marketing and sales. Um, a break that got me out of the plant, so to speak, and into marketing and focused on customers. In 1986, I was on a small uh, Skunk Works team that developed and later launched the well-known Stainmaster brand and then went into sales. Um, the last two years I was with DuPont, I sold fibers and chemicals to Shaw Industries. And let me tell you, once I started interacting with Shaw, I just fell in love with the company and the culture and the Dalton and North Georgia community. In fact, I was so focused on my customer, uh, my nickname became Shawcom instead of Balkan. <laughs> I think it's a little bit like Obamacare. I think they were trying to tell me I was uh, getting too focused, but I, I just rolled with it. I said, it's great. I love it. That, that's awesome, Tim. That, that's fantastic. And so... So you went over from DuPont over to Shaw and uh, been there ever since. Absolutely. It's been a, been a great, uh, great run. It goes by in a hurry, I'll tell you. I, I can only imagine. I, and and I, I do want to tell you as well, on behalf of our affiliates, I know a number of uh, you, you, you all at Shaw support us in a number of different ways. And um, I always love going up to our restores in the North Georgia region and seeing all the flooring that's made available to us. Um, and, and a lot of it's that great, great Shaw uh, you know, the LVT we talked about and that sort of thing. So thank you for that. I know that you guys have that sort of uh, charitable spirit kind of ingrained there in, into the organization itself. Absolutely. We believe um, you can't have a healthy company if you don't have a healthy community. And uh, we all, all feel it's important that we work together. Absolutely. Well, um, <clears throat> I hope you'll forgive me, uh, Tim, <clears throat> that uh, a little bit of raspy here in my voice is from the the wonderful pollen that we get to enjoy uh, down here at this time of year. So I hope you'll forgive that. Before your listeners, we will say we're practicing good CDC social distancing. <laughs> You're down in Columbus, and I'm up here in North Georgia. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, well more than the six-foot uh, gap. We absolutely are. Um, I hadn't even thought about that, Jim. That's exactly right. Um, so the other question I just kind of to get us just rolling here is, 
what would you say, you told us a little bit about your life prior to Shaw, but what, what do you think are some of the critical experiences that maybe best prepared you for your current role for being uh, president of Shaw Industries? Well, you know, I, I grew up as a fourth generation preacher's kid, you know, PKs as we called ourselves. So, you know, Christian lessons became foundational values to me. You know, my faith was introduced at birth by both my parents and grandparents and great grandparents and aunts and uncles, and, and they were reinforced all through my, my life. And can't tell you uh, what, what, how grateful I am for that foundation. Now I think going and, and listening and observing, one of my favorite riddles in life is, is it more important for the teacher to teach or for the student to learn? And I believe the answer for that is that it's more important for the student to learn because if you truly want to learn, a teacher will appear. And that teacher may be a traditional teacher, but it may be just someone that takes interest and, and like Habitat, kind of pulls up beside you and teaches you both a skill and a life lesson. So it's hard for me to, to fully express my gratitude for the many great teachers who have shown interest in me and, and have aspired, I really aspire to be a curious uh, lifetime learner. I think that's really, uh, again, one of the great things that Habitat helps do. Absolutely. Well, and Tim, in, in your role there at Shaw, it sounds like you had a great foundation that prepared you uh, for what you now do. I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, in, in your, your time there as a leader at Shaw, what would you say have been both your, maybe your most rewarding as well as your most disappointing experience or experiences that you've had uh, well, during your time start, there? Let's start with the, with the rewarding part. It's really all about people. And mm. I passionately believe in servant leadership. You know, servant leadership delivers superior results through passionately serving others. Uh, we formalized this practice in what we call the Shaw way, you know, particularly trying to be politically correct. The Shaw way really aligns our associates and their functions to the customers we serve in order mm. to deliver these expected business outcomes. Mm. Shaw way really empowers every level of our organization to take appropriate risks, to speak up, to innovate, hold each other accountable, keep each other focused. And that Shaw way, that servant leadership, elevates our individual and our collective performance. The Shaw way also prioritizes enterprise above self. If, if, if we were a football team, we'd have big Shaw on the front and generally not our names on the back of the jersey. So we try to adapt to diverse individual perspectives and preferences, but we do that after we ask people to adopt a shared mission, and we get this, if you adopt the mission, we will adapt to your gifts and graces and perspectives, and we think that mutual respect for our shared mission and individual diversity creates the magic that gets unleashed by servant leadership. So what I'm most proud of is, is the growth of our people, the impact we have at, at, at every level, both at work and at home and in the community that allows us to grow and achieve uh, consistent results and develop really a sustainable culture. Because if you have a sustainable culture, the results will follow. You, you talked a little bit though about uh, disappointing. Um, maybe disappointing isn't the best adjective. I'll use challenging. And that's really okay. leading in this COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. You, know, you, you think about, um, I personally been in business and life a long time, and I don't know that I've ever had anything that fully prepared me for this. Really? Wow. You, you think about it, it, it impacts us like nothing before. I mean, we have disaster drills, you know, where we can mm -hmm. certainly um, – we have some devastating tornadoes and things. We know how to pull together in a community, but something that's simultaneously global and intensely local is, is very difficult. Now, in some ways, uh, our balance is a little bit different because we're a supplier to the construction trade and to home centers, 
So therefore, mm -hmm. we're classified as essential operations. So mm -hmm. we early on discontinued non-essential travel and maximized the number of our associates who are working from home. I mean, for example, for the last five weeks, our salespeople have been leveraging uh, Google Hangouts and Zoom and the phones because they haven't been able to call on customers face to face. They're, they're, they're kind of like caged, you know, in place. But they really learned to innovate. You know, our customer Great. service and financial service teams have been working from home. We probably have a third of our people working from home. But that means that, that two-thirds are associates in operations and distribution who just cannot work from home. So we've right. really worked hard to, you know, integrate the CDC guidelines, so social distancing, changing our work practices, our workflows, enhanced cleaning, contract tracing, um, ways to have uh, plant shutdowns in the event that we have um, uh, any of the, the virus there. We do self-isolation, you know, because we're trying to really get this balance because COVID threatens both our health, our economic well-being, and really the emotional state of mind of, of many of our people because we're just not used to not being able to go out and do the things we do. You know, we know that even with the best of intentions and the best of training, this is so unprecedented that we'll make some flawed decisions. So we've got to learn to assess, address, and adjust. I mean, I'll give you an example like with masks. Early on, we got masks, and well, in, early in the, in the pandemic, it was considered bad form if you're using them in industry. We needed to give them to the first responders. So we did that. Right. And so... Now, um, we're saying, hey, with CDC guidelines shifting, we're equipping all of our, our, our workers and, and truck drivers, even our salespeople, to have masks and mm -hmm. go through that. So I'm constantly trying to balance being realistic. Hey, we've got to take actions to protect our health and the health of our business. But also be optimistic. I mean, because it's easy to get discouraged or distracted. You know, so we've got to show the, the, the moral courage and sensitivity that this will end and mm -hmm. that we will get through it. And that even if we can't come together traditionally, we are stronger together and, and, and we'll, we'll figure out how to, how to persevere. But it's, it's, it's a, a real challenge. I know it must be impacting uh, your mission and your team also. Yeah, it definitely is. Although I guess I feel inspired hearing about the sort of work that you all are doing at Shaw to, you know, not not only try to preempt issues, but, you know, putting those sort of mechanisms in place, you know, in the long run there to protect your people, keep them safe, but also to keep things operational and functional. Um, it's, it's been some, I tell you, we've had some heroic people on our front line. I mean, for example, uh, we have done between 40 and 60 of these pop-up hospitals and to get in the kind of uh, specific um, flooring that's unique to that circumstance and to, you know, have it there arrayed. Uh, some of our people worked, uh, you know, we, we, like a lot of the world, saw shortages in um, hand sanitizers and cleaning. So we converted our shock chem operations, which normally makes stain blockers and dyes into making cleaning products and hand cleaners. Uh, we've had people that we're trying to figure out how to sew masks and make protective wear. And um, we've been feeding, uh, been, been buying from the local restaurants and feeding frontline workers at the hospitals, uh, both help the hospital and of course help the local restaurants. You know, a small town, you know, an army runs on its stomach. <laughs> right, absolutely. Um, Tim, that's fantastic. Like I said, that's very encouraging to hear. And it, interestingly enough, I think it does, it, you kind of already answered this next question I have for you, because um, I think it leads into it perfectly, and, and that's really what are the, what, what do you see as being the most critical skill sets and attitudes that's necessary to be a successful leader? Um, I, I'd like to just hear from you on that. I mean, it sounds like you already had a good foundation, you know, especially for this challenging circumstance. Um, but what would you say about that? We talk about our culture needing to be concurrently hungry humble and smart. And you, you think about those things, to a certain extent, they fight against each other. You know, you think about the hunger, 
it comes from this unwavering drive to win and an unwavering focus on the marketplace. I'm sure it's like a lot of your people with the passion for their mission. You've got to also, though, have humility to, to build a, a diverse team, to engage everybody, to recognize that none of us individually are as smart as all of us. So we have to make sure that this diverse and engaged team is empowered allowed to do things, you know, make small mistakes, you know, because unfortunately we often learn from things that don't go as exactly as planned. And that really is what drives that third part, being smart, because you typically get smart by doing. You know, it requires that curiosity, that tenacity, and the ability to both analyze and, and learn from your mistakes. Mm. I, I love that. Hungry, humble, but smart at the same time. Right. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, switching gears just a little bit here, I, I'd love to hear, the, I'll, I'll be honest, if, if there was one question that I'm really excited to hear your answer to, it, it's this one. Um, and, and that is, what are the, the sort of things that you most commonly get sidetracked or derailed by in your role as leader? I mean, I imagine that your day is filled with a variety of different things to be responsible for and issues that come up unexpectedly. I'm curious to know how, how do you as a leader stay focused and what are the sort of things that, that do come up that kind of sidetrack you from your primary mission there at Shaw? You know, the, the, without question, my, my uh, uh, most obvious shortcoming is time management. And you can imagine in this curiosity to be hungry and humble and smart you know, you, you, the curiosity drives engagement and tenacity gets you down a lot of rabbit trails. And <laughs> it's easy to, uh, you know, from a, a perspective, kind of be at uh, hyper ADD. The next thing you know, you're down this rabbit trail and you've lost track of, uh, of your schedule. So right. to be able to do that, what I have to have is a great team around me. You know, I have a, a great uh, administrative assistant that helps keep me on track, helps keep me you're going through there. Uh, people who, who work, you know, with me recognize that, you know, they have to help me in that area. And uh, it's a great example of, again, all of us are smarter than any one of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks a bit, well, um, they say. Uh, it most definitely does. And I mean, as you know, through volunteering with Habitat and, and whatnot, that we certainly have to, uh, adopt that sort of attitude in everything we do because there's so many um, things to take care of. And, and, and in, in Indian, any industry, I suppose, um, there's just so many of those. I like the, the term you use there, the rabbit trail. Um, <laughs> that's so easy, <laughs> so easy to deal with. Um, you know, the, the next question that I wanted to ask you, and I think you've already really kind of addressed this in a certain way, but I'll still ask it just from another perspective because um, we, we had mentioned you thought that disappointing wasn't the best adjective, maybe challenging was. Um, maybe besides COVID, how about I'll ask that. What are some of the unique what are some of the unique challenges that maybe you have faced as a leader and, and really how have you addressed some of those challenges? You know, I, I think is, you know, and maybe it's not that unique because it is something I felt much more prepared for. And that's really uh, the, the challenge of leading in a time of increasing change and disruption. You know, the pace of change is going faster and faster and faster. You know, one of the things that, that we talked about, you know, we're about a 50-year-old company. Realistically, for the, for the first 35 years of that, you know, what I sometimes call Shaw 1.0, we were focused from bootstrapping ourselves up from a startup and, and our drive, our passion every day was we want to be the world's biggest and best carpet manufacturer. Mm -hmm. That was our, our focus. And then what we realized is, is to continue to grow, we had to widen our gaze. We had to start looking at flooring. We had to see how to do that. So, so in about the next 10 year phase, we said we really want to diversify and innovate different techniques there. And now in the last five years, we've talked about Shaw 3.0. The world is changing so fast, our customer base. So what you see is each of those successive 
phases of our evolution get shorter and more intense. Uh, because the, the power to disrupt and what you assume can change on you so quickly. So, you know, the thing that I believe strongly is that markets come to equilibrium. Markets change. Even the biggest players can't stop the market, but what they can do is impact the pace of change. You can make it go slower or you can make it go faster uh, when you, you when you give yourself time to adjust. And you think about what's going on with automobiles. You know, sedans ruled for generations and now sport utilities came in. So you have to right. sort of start adjusting to that. You know, you, if you're the biggest player and have a great distribution network, you may give yourself time to adjust, but mm -hmm. you, you can't ignore it. You've got to figure out how to get there. And that's the same for us in, in flooring and construction materials. Mm. That's a very interesting concept about the idea that the, that period of evolution is getting shorter and shorter. I, I assume you, you believe that's just gonna continue. We're gonna see that trend that we're just gonna continue to see this rapid change you know, not just in a, in a market, but in the world, really. I, I do, because I think the tools to bring about innovative new products are getting faster. Think about something like 3D printing, or think about even in this COVID um, challenge, um, the, the amount of innovation. Think about all the different kinds of tests and different kinds of mm -hmm. treatments that are being tested and, 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 and put through. Now, in some cases, they're limited by there's a certain amount of, of dwell time you have to test to see if approaches are efficient and effective. But mm -hmm. by doing those things simultaneously, you can shorten the cycle. And then, like Absolutely. no other time before, a good solution can be put on the Internet, and it can become global overnight. Right. So, so those traditional um tools that manufacturers used to have hey we have most of the research and we control access to the market those are are are, are still effective but they're not the same kinds of um we call them a moat around the business that moat isn't as wide and as deep as it used to be which is a great Absolutely. time as a consumer because we have access to better products that are cheaper and more effective than ever in the history of mankind but you mm -hmm. got to be on your toes. You got to run every day. <laughs> Absolutely. That, um, Tim, can I go on a sidetrack real, real quick? Can I? I hope it's not a rabbit trail. It, we'll it, see. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, it's just it's so. I think it's interesting that that, that your answers to my questions are, are such because, interestingly enough, before you and I were speaking, I was actually on the phone with Donna, and we were. Uh, on a conversation with affiliates last week and, and we've been having regular conversations with affiliates every week. And um, really, I think there is that, that strong perception that the world is changing, as you said, and the need to innovate is there. And we, we've been thinking about how that relates to habitat and habitats are very, uh, you know, we're not quite 50 years old like Shaw, but we're, you know, uh, well into our forties and, Interestingly enough, we, we've kind of tended to rely on the same sort of ideas, the same sort of practices, the same sort of fundraising mechanisms, homeowner engagement mechanisms over the last 40 years. And what Donna and I were discussing, and we discussed this with affiliates, is by being put in this COVID-19 pandemic situation, uh, almost instant, instantaneously, you know, overnight, we had to change the way that we're doing everything. Um, you know, fundraising events for example, which have always been very big in habitat, you know, we're going to have to rethink the way those things work. Um, similarly, you know, even with the way we engage volunteers on our job site, you know, um, the, the world is changing in a very different way. And, um, you know, the way that we engage is, is really going to have to, to change, I think, in a, like it never has before. And where I'm, I'm going with that is what are the sort of tool sets and skill sets that you think, um, you know, people not just in the business world, but you know, in the nonprofit world, which nonprofits are a business. What are the sort of tools that we're going to need to be able to respond to that? You've already shared some of them. You know, the things that you guys have done at Shaw. But what are some of the other things that you see kind of coming down the pipeline? Ways of thinking that we need to adopt to be able to, you know, really evolve with the situation. 
Yeah, what, what we've been teaching is a technique that supports servant leadership called design thinking. And what design thinking really tries to do is to start with a, uh, a small but relevant problem definition. Quite candidly, half the time the problems are things that really annoy us, but we just come to put up with it. It's just what it is, right? So, right. so you start with that problem solving, and then you say, how might we change it? Mm -hmm. You know, and that okay. how might we is an action-oriented, hey, you know, which says we're, we, we, it gives yourself and the organization permission to play with it. How might we change right. it? And right. so you, you start sort of brainstorming and you try to put up some hypotheses. We believe in learning from doing. So you say, okay, how might we test it? How might we <clears throat> see? How might we refine it? And then be willing to, if it works, go deeper. If it doesn't work, yeah. throw it away. Try something else. You know, mm. uh, build on it, share it. You know, we sometimes call it a blameless autopsy. You know, mm. that action we took, did it turn out the way we assumed? If it did, great. If it didn't, is it because we assumed wrong? What do we now know? What do we now know that we didn't know then? Or because mm -hmm. our assumption was right, we just executed poorly. How could we refine that? And you get that cycle going and you, and, you, and, you, and you see results. So I think with all the rich heritage of volunteers that you have, so, you know, an example for fundraising maybe, well, how might we, you know, take advantage of uh, the, the innate need that people want to contribute and help? They want to see the um, impact of their good work. How might we connect that? You know, you mm -hmm. might experiment with it. You know, start with start small and see if it works. If it does, do more of it. If it doesn't, don't get so tied to it that you can't. You aren't willing to kill it and go, go to the next idea. Absolutely. And once wow, you that's... get a culture or a group that's sort of comfortable with that design thinking, that 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 playing with an idea that's good for the whole. Uh, mm -hmm. You, you, you learn that that frustration, right? Um, you know, the old, what's the old story? Edison had, you know, a hundred light bulbs that didn't work before that hundred and first did. Right. You know, so hopefully they weren't the same light bulb over and over and over. They were <laughs> right. evolutions, right? Right. I, I love that, Tim. I love this idea of design thinking and this model that you just shared because I think it's such a not just relevant, but very practical way to operate in the kind of environment that we're in. Um, and it's one that's not necessarily restricted by your geography or even your technology. I mean, that's just something very practical, hands-on, somebody can sit down at their desk and do, um, and then, you know, work together as a team to, to implement. So I, thank you for sharing that. I, I love that. And those are some of the things we're working with, I think, the partnership between United Way and Habitat can be. I know up here, the Habitat uh, in North Georgia is one of our United Way affiliates. And, and that's some of the things that we're starting to, to see is this next generation of giver. Um, you know, we, we still think that people are inherently and innately charitable. Um, but they want to see, I think, a more direct connection between their gift and the output um, generationally, whereas maybe my generation was more willing to just put it in a pot and hope that, you know, at the end of the day, it kind of came out. So we're, we're, we're figuring out how do we work with our affiliates, and it really gives us a lot of degrees of freedom for some of this, this um, playful experimentation. Absolutely. Um, well, Tim, you're switching gears a little bit here. Um, this, this, these next two questions I have, I always think are kind of funny questions to ask because, um, and and when I when I say them, you'll you kind of know why. But I'd love to know what what would you classify as the easiest part of your job, as well as maybe what would be the the most difficult or hardest part of your job, and then kind of expound for us why that is so. Um, I, I know with a job like what you have, there's probably no easy parts to it, um, but I'd love to, to hear what what. Just your thoughts on, on a question like that. The, the easiest part of my job is, is interacting with customers. Uh, we are blessed with a wide range of customers. Most of our customers are 
what we hear so much about the heroes of our economy, the small business owner. It's that, you know, honest, small, hardworking, often family-oriented business who um, are making a difference in people's communities and people's lives. I mean, you think about it, to invite someone into your home to do really a small-scale renovation, sometimes a bigger-scale renovation, you really got to you got to have a level of trust. And you think about that, sure. not just security, but even now, health. So these entrepreneurs and their stories and, and their ideas and their circumstances really get me excited. And, and, and if we know that the market is the lifeblood of our business. So I think each of those entrepreneurs is, is like a little puzzle piece to the marketplace. And the more you, 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 interact with, touch those puzzle pieces, you start to get the, the foundation of the market, you, you get those corner pieces, using that analogy, and you really got to touch a lot of pieces to see the whole puzzle. And, uh, it's exciting for me to, to do that, and, and our company is a very customer first. We do a lot of uh, things to interact with them in, in, in multiple settings. That's been one of the frustrations that we've had in um, for example, we have a very extensive sales force, not being able to go out and touch those customers. But on the other hand, it's forcing us to innovate. How do we get that same input from, from the market using virtual tools and electronic ways? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the hardest part of, of my job flows out of that. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, the more you go into the market, we talk about the dynamics of this market, um, how it changes. For an enterprise to prosper, it must grow and become more productive. Um, a sad part of business is that enterprises must either grow or die. And right. when the enterprise dies, it has so many collateral damages. And so you go out in the market, I'll give you an example, starting as an old fiber producer. Carpet um, in the earliest days uh, was made out of staple. You know, it was wool or cotton, something you made in short lengths and you spun it together to make a long string. So synthetic fiber, we would take continuous filament, we'd cut it into short pieces and run it through traditional textiles. Um, that had been the foundation for hundreds of years. And Really, the carpet industry started with spun yarns, and we had um, extensive people who were operating all over the South and blending and twisting, and, and the consumer liked products that looked like synthetic wool. But what we found over time is that we can innovate and make better products cheaper and faster and with more utility by not taking that synthetic fiber and chopping it up into little pieces and then reconstituting it. We started with bulked continuous filament, synthetic silk, if you will, long strands that you wrap together and the quality would allow us to do it. And over time, bulked continuous filament or BCF display staple. And as that happened, um, literally thousands of jobs were transformed people who spent their life being great spinners, suddenly the technology moved it. Or right. you talked earlier, the innovation of LVT, luxury yeah. vinyl tile has been a dynamic product that's growing like no product quite candidly I've seen in my almost 40 years in this flooring industry. And that wow. growth is displacing engineered hardwood and you know, ceramic tile, laminate mm -hmm. flooring, even a little bit of soft surface flooring with carpet. People say, boy, this LVT is so practical. Instead of having a total wall-to-wall, -to -wall, maybe I'll have uh, LVT and then cut a piece of broad loom, surge it, and put a, a rug on top. Mm -hmm. When that happens, it creates jobs, but it also displaces jobs. We've had yeah. to shut plants. I mean, just even before COVID, uh, we had uh, at the end of last year, we had a couple of plants that we closed mm -hmm. uh, because we're making huge investments in other types of flooring. And, you know, 
our dedicated people, they were tied to a technology that shifted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in many cases, we can retrain and move, but in not every case can we. And, and it's getting mm -hmm. that balance, making sure we have the safety nets in, in place, the, the retraining, uh, mm -hmm. the understanding that we can still have this playful, experimental, um, you know, thinking and, and innovation. But a lot of times innovation on one side disrupts the status quo on the other. And that's the sure. hard part, getting that balance, uh, working with people uh, respectfully during those transitions. Well, that's I, I, your answer there, I think, perfectly segues into the next question that I had for you. You, you know, because you, you've spoken a lot about evolution, about the change that inevitably occurs in a, a marketplace. I mean, with your example right there of going from the, the staple to the, um, I hope you'll forgive me. I, the the with continuous the, filament. Yeah, BCF, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, how do you, how do you as a leader prepare and adapt, I mean, I mean, to those sort of changes? I mean, you know, when those things, you, you've mentioned about being able to find that balance. What, what are some practical ways to help find that balance? Can you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a couple of things, and we have the privilege of our structure. First is stay grounded on your values. And let people recognize that, you know, what they do doesn't define who they are. You know, mm -hmm. where you are now, you know, we, we've done some training, you know, our iceberg is melting. Well, mm -hmm. recognize that the iceberg may be melting that you're on. So go find a better iceberg. Get your mm -hmm. whole colony safely to this new and better place. Um, mm -hmm. There's techniques that can help you do that. But denying... Um, using that story, that your iceberg mm -hmm. is melting doesn't do anybody any good. Right. So how do we work together? How do we stay grounded on those values? And the second mm -hmm. thing is, as an enterprise, maintain a conservative balance sheet so you mm -hmm. have the ballast to move over. I mean, you, you see that, and, and I appreciate it early on, that fundraising is a crucial part of your mission. You've got to have yeah. enough financial resources to weather those transitions and those um, unanticipated things. And you've got to have, I think every family, you know, operating without some degree of savings or, or safety net um, can be devastating. So, you know, it's a great privilege for us to be part of Berkshire Hathaway. And we do have this very conservative balance sheet. We're essentially debt free. So um, we can manage for the long term. You know, we get directive from Omaha, um, where Mr. Buffett lives, that just says, hey, protect your enterprise like it were a castle. Constantly widen the moat. You know, make it wider, deeper. Put alligators in it if you can, but don't wall <laughs> yourself off from the industry. Right. He also gives a great... He, he loves to tell stories. He tells us a couple of stories about keeping us grounded in our values. We really mm -hmm. don't get much direction on what we do, but we get a lot of direction on how we do it through these stories. Mm -hmm. One of them is, as a manager, manage every action as if an aggressive but honest journalist was going to chronicle what you do and put it on the front page of your local paper. Oh, wow. I think most of those actions, if you could um, stand up to that, will lead you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing that he reminds us every year, we, we, we sign basically uh, uh, a statement, and he tells us, you know, if you take prudent risks in the business that cost us, honestly, even significant money, mm -hmm. we'll be understanding. But if you take actions that compromise our ethics or cost us reputation, we'll be quick mm -hmm. and ruthless. And yeah. we have that ballast that to say, mm -hmm. you know, things change. We, um, we, you know, we're trying to, to move to the market. You know, the future is unknown and unknowable. So what mm -hmm. you try to do is to prepare for the inevitable. But you got to make sure that as you do that, you don't let your 
your your your foundational values uh, drift and become irrelevant. Absolutely. And I'm sure you face that as that next generation of volunteers and and you know housing in America as it evolves and changes. Um, you know you got to stay to those core beliefs that define habitat, but then be open to new ideas and and and, and new ways of of moving forward. Yeah, you, you just said it really great right there, Tony. We, we, interestingly enough, every year we, we have a, a document that we kind of sign as affiliates as well. It's called the Affiliate Covenant. And at the very beginning there, we have our, our core beliefs that we have as, as Habitat. Um, and then we move into the kind of, as we, when we're signing this document, we then go into something called the Quality Assurance Checklist, which is more of the, uh, the actual procedures of things, if you will. So, um, I love what you said there about sticking true to your beliefs, but being willing to maybe change up on the procedures and the way you do things. Um, and I think that, it's important that you repeat those core beliefs all the time. We talk about it, Shaw, that our core is honesty, integrity, and passion. And I think everybody at every level uh, repeats that. And I think sometimes you think it becomes repetitive, but I think it's almost like a, a mantra that, that if people right. are grounded in those core beliefs, it, mm -hmm. it helps people feel confident to take other actions as long as they don't violate that core. Absolutely. Well, that you said a, a mantra. I, a, a little axiom I heard a couple of years ago was that repetition is penetration. That's a good one, right? Yeah, and, and I've, I've always kind of stuck with that. That's why I, I've, one of the things I do at Habitat is I love to have our, our mission you know, displayed everywhere. Um, our mission statement, having it on our business cards, having it on our letterhead, having it, you know, everywhere that you possibly can see because, you know, just the more you read it, the more you say it, you know, it, it does almost, it almost becomes a part of you, wouldn't you say? I mean, like in your case, Absolutely. honestly. So Tim, let, let me ask you here, you know, as a leader, you've got a lot of different responsibilities going on day to day. And I'm curious to know, how do you, how do you take care of Tim Bockel? How, how do you prevent burnout, exhaustion, and just some of the other common side effects that are inherent in leadership roles. You know, Ryan, I think everybody has to find a way to get those balance. And, and for me, there, there, there are three pieces of that, you know, family, service, and, and exercise. You know, family, I, I'm blessed with a, with a, a great nucleus. Uh, my my father-in-law, who just turned 90, he remains a great role model. And he was a business person that really demonstrated to me that business can be a mission uh, because it enables other things. I guess my, uh, my, my direct family would have led me more to work in a nonprofit or be a doctor or be something that's a more obvious service. But what I found is that the community needs those businesses and those opportunities to enable service. So uh, make it a personal mission. He, he remains a great role model. Uh, my daughter Bergen is a great influence on me. Like I say, she majored in, in nonprofit management. She's got a level of resilience and grace and grit that motivates me, and uh, we, we talk often. Uh, my 17-year-old niece is my latest teacher who's exposing me to possibilities of the next generation and the future, keeping, keeping us relevant. But, but ultimately, Cheryl, my wife, is, is my ultimate partner and role model. Uh, She's really shaped the person I am since my teenage years. She continues to inspire me daily. You know, she makes me laugh. She keeps me grounded. And she really encourages me to focus on relationships. Cheryl is uh, mm. the, the most networking, outreaching person you, you could ever imagine. And one of the things we do together is we do a lot of service. Uh, we, we are very involved in the Dalton First United Methodist Church. And one of the things I love about the greater Dalton community is uh, the churches, the, the local government, and the local businesses all work together to solve problems. United Way of Northwest Georgia is a way that we fan out and bring in other agencies, and, and we've been very involved in, in both of those. And then other specific charities sometimes that come and go over time that you can get intensely involved in. Over the years, we, we've um, gotten passionate about Juvenile Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association. But then for personal time, um, 
you know, exercise for me is very important. I think it's so important for the body, mind, and spirit to just keep moving, find, find a way to, to, to do that. Uh, it gives you that renewal, gives you that energy to, uh, to get through the day also. Absolutely. Well, you know, Tim, you, 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 I think that's excellent that you talk about family service and, and exercise. That's helping to prevent burnout on your end and also probably to keep, you know, when you're talking about your, your wife and daughter and your niece, they're keeping you motivated. How about as far as your, your employees go, so the people outside of you, um, how do you keep them motivated and inspired and ultimately committed to the work of Shaw and, and to the Shaw way? that you uh, were talking about earlier. How, how do you keep them going? You know, earlier we were talking about sort of our, our, our mantras, honesty, integrity, and passion, but really our mission, we talk about our mission is to create a better future. And that better future has to be for our coworkers, our customers, our communities, and our company. We've always had the privilege of looking at all four stakeholders. It's not just the shareholders, so to speak. You know, because I've never seen a happy customer from an unhappy employee. And typically, if you don't have a solid community foundation, then it's hard for that uh, associate to, to focus on servicing the customer. You know, at the end of the day, though, growth creates that opportunity, and it, and it enables our better future. So the Shaw way aligns our people. We talked about that quite a bit earlier, that culture. That, that, that culture is ultimately what takes care of us. That culture is ultimately what connects us during times of crisis like this COVID. You know, finding a way that we really do understand that we're stronger together than individually. And um, you know, maybe a small towns where we tend to operate um, inspires that kind of connectedness because we recognize there's a certain amount of resilience and, and self-determination that, that defines who we are. Absolutely. And then, you know, kind of last couple of questions here, that just are, are, you know, hope not unnecessarily personal, but I, I'm curious to know just in your personal life, what are some of the practices that you've adopted that you think, and I know better is such a Rel, you know, relative term here, but that, that make you better, both on a personal and professional level. And I mean, you've talked about kind of a lot of different things that make you who you are as Tim Balkum, but who, who, what are some of the practices that you've adopted that you think make you better? You know, one, one of the things I think, and, uh, you know, surround yourself with people who make you better. I mean, I, again, it started mm. my wife and I at 15 and 16. You know, we, mm. we connected and, and, you know, how, how does it make you better? Uh, something my father-in-law says around the time, put yourself in as many situations as possible that the outcome is going to be neutral to positive. If you see a situation where it's going to be neutral to negative, try to back out of it. You know, Surround yourself with people who make you better, who push you, who, who inspire you. I tell you, if you're going to be hungry and humble and smart, you get smarter by putting yourself in circles where you're not the smartest one in the room. You, you learn mm -hmm. from, from, from those other, other people. I, I, I look for experiences outside of my direct work to, to see, you know, how do I apply that to our seemingly unique circumstances? But, you know, if you read, you know, Harvest, Harvard Business Review or Fast Company or listen to podcasts and, you know, mm -hmm. other industries, I think we think our industry or our circumstance is so unique but a lot of times we're all wrestling with the same problems. I mean, you're wrestling with problems managing yeah. the nonprofit or taking that passion and, and, and getting maximum utility out of it. So I think yeah. that, um, you know, trying to, to find people that keep you in track is, is what works for me. Oh, I love that. I, that's excellent. I love your uh, father-in-law's uh, model there, neutral to positive. <laughs> stay, stay there and, yeah, he has a lot of one of the things he talks about too when you when you're digging in as a leader, he says you know mm -hmm. um, you know start looking. He says when 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 they get when they're getting vague, you need to get specific, and when they're getting specific, sometimes you have to get vague to keep that <laughs> that balance right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so the last question I had here for you, Tim, is you know do you have any sort of personal professional goals that you're hoping to accomplish and you know, what, what do you, what's your kind of 
plan or methodology to accomplish those sort of things? You know, uh, I think both of those are, are, are very um, grounded in the servant leadership. You know, first and foremost, um, I, I, I passionately want Shaw to prosper. You know, you, you, you won't, I, I am the beneficiary of leaders that have come before me. Shaw has a long tradition of long service. And, you know, every one of them wanted to leave the company better than they found it. And that's really what drives me, that service. How do we continue the Shaw Way culture, that alignment and empowerment to ensure that we are certainly strong, but agile and adaptive mm -hmm. to respond to this disruptive marketplace and changing consumer. And uh, mm -hmm. so, so that's, that's what drives me. And then connected to that is I want Greater Dalton to prosper. You know, Northwest mm -hmm. Georgia has been a special place for Cheryl and, and me to raise and expand our family. Uh, we've got strong friendships uh, in this community. And, you know, I know we're driving things like Believe Greater Dalton. It's a cross-functional initiative to, to, to you know, make Dalton that, this exciting place. We think it's a, a great opportunity. It combines the, the best of both worlds. There's, you know, small town values, but connected to an intermediate city in Chattanooga and a global city mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And, but we want to, sure. want to make sure that we believe that Dalton's that special place, uh, unique from those two, but uh, can learn from mm -hmm. that. And I think that's a, a great way that Habitat is uh, mm -hmm. a part of making our community better. That's why I'm honored to, to support you in this because Habitat and United Way are great examples of, I think, those kinds of partnerships that make Dalton uh, a unique place. I'm sure make Columbus a unique place. Make that spirit of uh, we can band together and we can uh, we can control our fate if we all work together. Absolutely. Well, Tim, I, I got to say again, you you've thank you, um, and, and especially for the wealth of I think just wonderful knowledge and experience that you've given to us here in the last hour. I just there, there's a number of things that you have said that I really want to chew on and digest and kind of uh, really make a part of my leadership style, and I, I hope that our listeners have as well. So, again, thank you so much for uh, for what you're doing at Shaw, for what you're doing there for the Greater Dalton area, um, and, and of course for your supportive habitat. And of course, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you, and I appreciate one of the things that this uh, terrible COVID tragedy has done is it has reminded us of who are truly essential workers and that upfront uh, connection that we have. And you know, one of the reasons why we've had the privilege of being a essential worker is you can't shelter in place if you don't have safe shelter. And uh, we, we recognize that the people on the front lines who are um, I like to say belly to belly, making a better future, are, are the most essential part of our society. And uh, I hate that it takes a COVID to, to thank the grocery worker and the delivery person yeah. and uh, the, the construction person. Uh, but, but maybe that's what we need in our society right now is that renewal to recognize that, that we're all bound together and uh, we all, all got to make each other stronger. So I appreciate what you and your affiliates do every day to, to create that better future. Well, thank you, Tim. We appreciate that in a, a number of different ways. And um, again, I wish you the best of luck going forward and hope that uh, you continue to do a great job there at Shaw and uh, move the Shaw way forward. And just, again, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for everything. Thank you. And, and we'll, we'll be talking soon. We'll follow your progress. <laughs>